From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guests and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? I'm well, Jason. I've been um, doing some reading over the weekend, reading for pleasure, not for work. Yeah. Um, and I always feel a lot better mentally after I've had some some reading time. So, um, Any time travel or dinosaurs this time? No dinosaurs. There was some time travel. Yeah. 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 Um, so it's a new, a new series that I've got into, which is, uh, which is good fun. Um, yeah. So I think, um, reading is one of my mental health activities that I sometimes forget to do when I get too busy with life at home. So I, um, need to remind myself to find some time to do it. Well, we had a three day lockdown, uh, over the weekend. So we did, we did. It was a fantastic excuse to not go anywhere for me. Yeah, so, just read um, your book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, nuts. I can't get out of the house. I'm just going to have to stay here and read. I'm sure introverts all throughout Perth were rejoicing. Yeah. That, I don't have to see people. That's yeah. it. And I don't need an excuse to say no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, right. it's a government sanctioned reason to be, to be a loner. Yeah. Thanks Mark McGowan. Yeah. <laughs> Well, look, um, I'd love to introduce our guest for, for today. Um, she has a PhD in organisational psychology and is a leading voice in New Zealand for psychological health and safety. She is the director of two New Zealand organisations, Leading Safely and the Resilience Centre. And in case you didn't get it before, she's across from the di- across the ditch in New Zealand. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hilary Bennett. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Yeah, stoked to finally have you on. We've been trying for, I think, probably two months now to find yeah. the time that that suits. <laughs> so we are we are really keen to uh, have a chat with you today. All right, Hilary, um, before we get started, we do like to ask our guests um, if they have any favourite podcasts. Um, so is there anything in particular that you like to listen to? Um, no, you, you're going to be powerfully horrified at this. Is I don't tend to listen to podcasts to be truthful. I tend to um, watch uh, more YouTube than, than, than podcasts. I think maybe I'm more visual than an auditory listener. So hopefully I'm, I'm the right person for this podcast. <laughs> that's okay. Oh, that's, we, we've got a Flourish DX YouTube channel. So we do, we do. Yeah. <laughs> um, are, there any, are there any channels in particular that you watch on YouTube? Um, I... I tend to, from a professional perspective, I tend to track the um, the work that comes out of a group in um, in the UK called What Works Wellbeing. Um, I find their work really um, interesting and challenging, particularly over the last year with COVID, where they've been looking at the wellbeing not just from a workplace but from a community perspective as well. So I am I do do a regular spot check on what they're up to. Um, so that's probably my my sort of favourite place to go. Fantastic. That's a, a good suggestion for our listeners to go and have a look at. Yeah. Wonderful. So um, you're, you're doing a couple of um, fairly big things at the moment. So can you tell us about your professional career and sort of how you've got to where you are? Sure. Um, yeah, it's an interesting um, uh I feel like I've sort of come full circle in, in many ways in terms of my professional work because I um, started off 
um, many years, it's too many years these days to actually want to admit to because it sort of lets out my age. But, you know, in the mid 70s, I did my doctoral work um, as uh, in developing stress management programs for secondary high school teachers. And it was one of the first bits of research that identified that um, it's no use just toughening up the individual and leaving the system um, unchanged. Uh, you can get short-term gains, but you're not going to get long-term gains. And I really do mean it's a long time ago. This was probably um, in the late 1970s. Um, and yet here we are, you know, 2021, and I'm still having the same conversation. So my professional career has been strongly focused on trying to create workplaces where um, people can thrive as opposed to being harmed as a result of their work. And that was a conscious choice I made early on as opposed to becoming a clinical psychologist. I, I really felt that an organization psychology route would lead me to being able to work more, more proactively um, than, than you know, um, waiting for people to feel some level of distress and then and then supporting them, not that of course that I devalue any of that work in the least, it was just my professional choice was to work in, the, in, a, in a more proactive space. So I've sort of traveled from the stress space. Um, I spent several years working um, in universities across South Africa, Canada, and um, um, New Zealand, came to New Zealand in, in 1993. It um, worked at Massey University, but I've always had a private practice as I did because I didn't think you could teach in this area if you didn't have some experience and I got to the point um, probably about 12 years ago that I would um, actually that's not true it was about 20 years ago um, that I would just go out and do my own thing and not be um, connected to the university anymore so it's been a long career in pretty much focused on trying to create workplaces that are mentally healthy either supporting students to do that or supporting organizations to do that. Thank you, Hilary. That's, um, yeah, I, <laughs> somewhat disheartening that, you know, that research was done in the 70s and you're still yeah, trying to, to get people <laughs> to, to make that, um, that connection. So um, good on you for sticking with it and um, carrying Look, I, I on. I probably had a little bit of, um, you know, probably deviated along the way. So when I had the resiliency centre, my work was obviously much more focused on the individual. Um, but I've come the full circle and I spend more of my time now in terms of trying to change the workplace rather than um, initially just building people's residency. And that's just a personal choice. It's not that I think the one is better than the other. Mm. I think it's one of the messages that we sort of fairly consistently talk about on here that, you know, there is that shared responsibility between the employer and the employee, um, but the efforts tend to still be focused on building up individual coping um, at the expense of looking at the hazards that are present in the organisation. And um, yeah, that's a, that's a fairly common um, observation that, that yeah. has come up from our guests here previously. Yeah. And it's not only just a focus on the individual, I think, I think it's also a focus on the, it's a reactive individual focus mm. as opposed to a proactive work focus. Um, and again, you know, as I've said a few times, it's not that that work isn't absolutely important and needs to be in place. Um, but it's what I've been calling the blessing and the curse of an EAP. Because of course we need to have EAPs in place and, 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 and support for people when they are feeling some level of distress. Um, but so many organizations think they've now done well-being because they've got an EAP, EAP in place. And so my, my latest thinking, I've got to write an article sometime on it, uh, you know, the blessing and curse of an EAP. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yes. You sure you haven't listened to this podcast before, Hillary? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, very, very similar observations we're seeing all around the world. Um, mm. But I guess you're you're from New Zealand, and you'll you'll hopefully be able to give us some insights in terms of the state of psychological health and safety in in New Zealand. Um, given that you've been beating the same drum for the last forty years, I'm not holding my breath. Um, but can can you tell us any um, key stats or anything in particular that might give us some insight in terms of what what does workplace mental health and psychological health and safety look like uh, in New Zealand? There, it's 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 actually not very different to the Australian um, stats at all. Um, you know, we um, uh, the, some of the, the, the recent figures have been one in six New Zealanders will in their lifetime experience a significant psychological um, condition um, and that one in five New Zealanders will at some point in time um, have um, experienced some level of, of, of distress so you know I think those numbers are pretty similar to Australia one in six one in five I mean one in four and I always would argue that um, when people are really significantly um, distressed you think of the mental health continuum if they're on the side where they're actually unwell they're probably not in your workplace so I always would argue to um, with an organization that you could probably count on at least at any point in time, at least one in four of your staff to be experiencing some level of um, minor to, to significant psychological distress. Um, and I always make the point that this is not about other people. This is actually about all of us. You know, if we were sitting in a room and we just had to do a count of a one in four, you know, room of 16, that's four of us at, at that point in time experiencing some some level. I, I used to use like the, language, the language of that. We may be struggling a wee bit. Um, so I don't think the numbers are that different. Um, I think that um, what I would see that, that in, in New Zealand at the moment, largely through the work of the New Zealand Business Leaders Forum, which is a um, an organization it was set up about uh, probably about um, I'm guessing about six seven years ago, um, supported by businesses who go through a membership scheme and to do some significant work in the space, um, and so really trying to influence leadership right at the senior level of organisations to understand what well-being is, to understand their roles and responsibilities, to um, be prepared to um, step back and start working more in the, as you were saying earlier, the hazard and risk assessment approach rather than the, um, this, you know, just providing some um, resiliency training or mental health awareness or mental health first aid issues. So I think that as a result of the work that the New Zealand Business Leaders Forum is doing at a senior level within New Zealand, we are seeing a real interest um, it's almost to me, uh, I, I, I was saying the other day to someone, it's like well-being's come of age, you know, that all of a sudden we've seen this tracking over the last while where people are starting to be curious and, 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 under, and want to understand a little bit, a little bit, um, a little bit um, anxious around it at times, like what yeah. does it mean? But in the last year, and maybe that's a COVID-related push, but I think it's more than that organizations really starting to actually um, start taking this seriously. Of course, the challenge though is to get to smaller, medium-sized business. And in New Zealand, um, I'm not so sure it would be the same in Australia, but I can't imagine it would be that dissimilar is, you know, a large percentage of organizations here employ less than 10 people. So, you know, where is the, the, the well-being 
storyline for small businesses, I think, is, is something that we haven't really tackled yet. Yeah, I'll have to refer you to uh, one of our previous guests, guests uh, Dr. Angela Martin, who spoke specifically about psych health and safety for small businesses. Yeah, and there are some great resources coming out um, mm-hmm. at the moment from Beyond Blue, um, specifically yes. targeted at, at small business. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one of the things that I'd say is a difference between New Zealand and Australia, and maybe that's a resourcing issue, and maybe that's because you've got you know much larger uh, population mass. But when um, you think of the whole of New Zealand could fit into the size of Melbourne, um, that there are those organisations like Beyond Blue, um, there are various um, um, state-led mental health organisations in in Australia that I think are doing some exceptionally good work. Uh, there's a good work coming out of Australia University on good work design. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a work that's been done in, in, in your neck of the wood in, in Perth. Uh, you know, so I think in, in that level, there's a lot more work happening um, than there is in New Zealand. But, you know, relative population wise, we're probably not that, um, that far behind. But we can beg and borrow from you guys as much as we can. Isn't that all in the spirit of Anzac? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And we just celebrated that, obviously, on the weekend. Yes. Mm. Um, so you've probably already given us a little bit of information about my next question, but do you have some ob- observations about the maturity of psychological health and safety in New Zealand? So it sounds like you sort of feel like it's starting to advance a little bit now. Oh, yeah, it's certainly not mature. There's no doubt in my mind that it's not mature. Um, I think there's a real um, a curiosity is the word I keep wanting to use around what does this actually, what is what is mental health? I think there's still a little bit of confusion or quite a lot of confusion where people equate um, mental health to mental illness. And so there's a, there's, there is a strong education piece to be had around what is well-being, um, that it is universal and that all of us have it every single day. And that is really changeable. Um, and, you know, that we don't separate our work and our, our home life. So there's a huge education piece to be done around what is well, what, what actually is um, well-being or, or, or mental health or, um, or what we mean by psychosocial harm. And there's so, many, there's so much language in that space that I think that gets a little bit confusing for people. One of the things that I've been trying to do is to try and pull back on the language, uh, make much simpler. So I'm very careful of using the word psychosocial risk um, even though I know internationally if you look at the ISO 45003 standards that are just about to be uh, launched in July the drafts are already out they're using the word psychosocial risk I find that when I go down and work with frontline staff and I do a lot of that work um, there's real confusion and there's almost a little bit of concern that we mean in a psycho so I have tried to use this language around um, you know, you have an obligation to identify the risks and those risks are to your physical health and your, and your, and your mental health. So just risk the well-being is, is the language I've been trying to use. Um, even psychosocial harm, although I know from a sort of a, a well-informed level, people will get that. I just think when you take that language back into businesses, you have to be really careful that you've spent got some time to get people to understand that um, because it can be very daunting when suddenly you're talking about psychosocial harm and people don't actually understand what that is. Sorry, I've probably gone off on track in terms of that, that question. 
You might need to pull me back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, the um, I know the Australian Institute of Health and Safety has recently released a position paper that sort of um, part of the purpose of that is to clarify some of the language and try to have some consistent language, um, yeah. particularly aimed at OHS practitioners. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, if you if you weren't aware of that one already, that might be of, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. I I think that's absolutely key um, um, to it. Um, and and the other the other thing was that I think in terms of of, of maturity, um, and I, I so I don't I, you know I'm not quite sure what this looks like in Australia, but one of the things I've come across is that as people have become aware of the importance of starting to seriously look at um, protecting uh, mental health in the workplace. Um, you know, all of a sudden on the critical risk register, the health and safety critical risk register, you see popping up the language, you know, so you can have six, seven or eight sort of physical harm, risk, physical risk there, like working over water, you know, confined spaces, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's psychosocial risk. <laughs> and uh, so one of, the, one of the things I'm really, really pushing at the moment is to get organizations to say, you have to step back and do as considered piece of work as you did around your physical risk, where you've identified them in terms of the specifics, that it's not okay to have on your critical risk register, wrapping up all the potential risks to people's mental um, health or well-being as one term. So it's not a single risk. Um, and that's quite an eye-opener. So, you know, I don't know where that sits uh, across Australia. Um, certainly in the organizations I work in Australia, I would say that they're not much further along that line. And I think that's an incredibly important piece of work for us to do because when people then say, okay, so there are several risks in, in psychosocial risks or risk to wellbeing. The other concern I have is that people default so quickly to the ones that are sort of top of mind and the ones that actually get exposure in the media. So um, bullying and harassment. But when you talk to people about what does risk their well-being, it's so often more related to the way the work is designed, the way the work is organized, the way the work is managed, um, than it is around um, you know, constant harassment and bullying. So I think that's the other thing is that in people's mind, they have a sense of what psychosocial risks or hazards look are, and, and we're not stepping back and saying, well, what is the broad range of things that may be potentially at play in this particular workplace? Yeah, I think um, that's that's consistent with um, with what we've observed here in Australia as well. That um, I think you know organisations tend to think about um, psychological health as this sort of um, almost a black box of you know mystery, um, and they they're a little bit afraid to to try to do anything other than refer it on to a mental health specialist, and they. Um, yeah, they, they definitely need that education in in the work design and, and how work design can influence mental health and that, you know, they don't need to be a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist to be able to do that preventive work. It is about how they're actually designing the way that work is done. Yeah. yeah. And it's not all about interpersonal relationships. There's a lot of other stuff uh, that's yeah. a lot more significant for people. Yeah. And in fact, the reason I do need to catch a plane this afternoon is that I'm actually going up to Auckland to launch uh, we've just designed, uh, developed a, um, a new resource called the Protect, Protecting Wellbeing, which is actually um, a, a framework for a facilitated conversation with a naturally occurring groups within organizations as to what might be the range of things that are impacting on their wellbeing that should be embedded in the 
or so it's not a tool or an instrument that's a one-off, but it's an embedded conversation that happens on a regular basis where the group starts to take ownership around some of the things that might be impacting on their well-being. And, and my message to the CEOs that will be at this forum tomorrow night um, will be to say, actually, if you're not prepared to seriously think about the way the work is currently done um, with an understanding it may need to be changed, then don't even go here. You know, um, if you if if you can't ask people to start taking us doing serious risk assessment work around their well-being and identifying the risks and then saying, oh well, sorry, there's no there's no way we can actually do this. I understand that shift work is shift work, and and if that's the nature of the game, that has to be done. But you know, there has to be a real willingness at the board and the senior level within organizations to take this stuff seriously and actually be prepared not to, to, to be prepared to think about how to do it differently. So it's quite a, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'll be interested to see what sort of reaction I get, but um, I think if we don't seriously uh, get engaged leaders of organizations to understand what their, their role is here and also to understand that the challenge of this work is not a technical challenge, it's not a quick fix, um, we're changing years of way we've done work. We we will not really get the gains that we that we're looking for. Mm. Yeah, um, it's really interesting how you talk about uh, your kind of evolution because I I feel like we've had similar career tra trajectories, if you like. Um, I started in organisational psychology myself and had more of that systems level uh, approach and uh, did a foray into risk management. Uh, then I really started to pivot more into well-being and self-care and building resilience. And now I'm really back with that shared model of, well, mm, you know, yeah, you to be mindful all you like, but you need to mm. fix the work first. Otherwise, you know, people are still going to get harmed. Yeah. Um, so uh, I really love that. And, and you're really blending the two now, I guess, in the two different companies that you're the director of uh, leading yeah. in the Resilience yeah. Centre. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about both of those organisations? And, so, and so the Resiliency Centre, work, you know, to be honest, Jason, I, I don't spend as much work there. I'm, I'm, I'm re-energizing my work through that by looking at um, doing what I'm calling well-being coaching. So again, it's again uh, working with um, senior leaders uh, and managers, ensuring that actually they're actually taking some time out to to better do diagnostic work around their personal and professional well-being because actually. If they're not tracking well, they're not traveling well in their continuum themselves, it's very hard for them to provide some support. So I think there's two things and the work I would do uh, from a more systems perspective would be to say, you know, what you really need to have in place is um, leaders who can understand what well-being is, can go and have a conversation, um, know what to look out for. And that would, you know, that's a real systems focus. But at the same time, who looks after those people, you know? so those people need to be in a good space in order to be able to provide support to other people. And um, I'm not convinced that going to a generic resiliency building stress management type program is what, what is needed. I think what's needed is a much more individualized personal um, coaching experience around someone having an opportunity to look at how they blend in their personal lives and their professional lives and what's working well for them and where there can be some some changes. I'm not sure to the extent that um, in Australia, so I, so I don't come across it often in Australia, but in New Zealand, the Mental Health Foundation has 
strongly adopted the work that came out of the UK on the five ways to well-being. Is that work that's familiar? Or you is that would that be familiar across Australia? Um, not so broadly used. I mean, we do have some of our own um, guidance, um, but maybe for our listeners, maybe you can explain. So, so the five ways to well-being is, I, I think, is is is, a, is an incredibly good framework at an individual level, but can also be used at an organisational level. And it was again why I endorse it is that it's very evidence-based. So the research was done. If you think of the mental health continuum between what distinguishes people that travel quite well, consistently travel better, they sit on the sort of thriving, going okay side of the mental health continuum as opposed to the struggling or or um, experiencing some level of harm side. What do these people do that is actually quite different to each other? And and they came out uh, with these five distinct areas, which I think they did a really good job in giving it some very really simple language that everyone can 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 relate to. So, the five ways to well-being is what does seem to be a support to people's well-being is people that stay active, which we've known that for a long time, people that stay connected, which again, certainly over COVID, we've realized the importance of connections, but people who are take notice, which builds on all the work around mindfulness. So people who, you know, are not living within their heads all the time, but are actually are aware around of things that are happening around them to noticing the small things, um, sense of gratitude, etc. Um, I've got to make sure that I can remember this, what have I done? So active, um, connecting, um, take notice. Um, keep learning is a really interesting one. And again, it, there's some, some research out of the UK over COVID, which has found that um, what COVID did was, uh, is gave people an opportunity to go and do some, some learning, some online learning stuff that they haven't done for ages. So it's not so much about the formal learning that seems to be good for our well-being, but it's more around... Um, and I love this word, you know, it's this word around someone who's open to new experiences, curious about things. And so they don't do the same things over and over again. They, they try and they experiment. And those people seem to be better off in terms of the well-being. And then the last one is, um, is around giving. So not giving in terms of wads of cash to any charity, not that I'm saying that that wouldn't be initially a good thing if you could afford it, but it's about acknowledgement, appreciation, recognition. So a lot of the work that we do on the individual basis in New Zealand, a lot of organizations are anchoring their work around that five ways to wellbeing framework, um, either to support individuals um, in, in a more one-on-one -on -one coaching sort of type environment or to structure the wellbeing program so that the activities that um, they engage in for sort of the organization could be saying, well, this is a connect piece of work or this is actually a piece of work that's given. And, 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 and if they can be all five woven in together, then that's a real um, a bonus because then at least the the energy and the resources that have gone into a wellbeing program, at least are based on some sound evidence that you're likely to get some return on this. So um, that's, that is something I see when I go into Australia is much more the are you okay type program. But um, in New Zealand, it seems to be, and it's probably because the Mental Health Foundation has adopted um, and provides a lot of free resources <laughs> um, on this. But at a personal level, I think it's an incredibly powerful framework. Yeah, from a public health approach, uh, the Act Belong Commit message is, is a big one here in Australia. So that covers three, I guess, of the, the five ways to wellbeing, yeah. if, if you yeah. like. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the biggest uh, continuous message that we get here mm. in Australia. 
I was working in Australia, um, actually out um, in, uh, in Queensland um, the year before COVID, which was 2019. And I was running a program, um, it was actually on safety leadership, but we were doing some work on, on, um, on wellbeing. And I had, I had shared this framework with this group. They were a group of mechanics, young mechanics. And um, I, one guy looked at me very forlornly and he said, oh, I don't do any of that stuff. And then I said to him, well, tell me about something that you really enjoy doing. And his face lit up and he said to me, you know, I've recently started coaching my kids. Um, I, I don't know what the sport would be in Queensland, uh, Aussie rules or whatever it might be. Um, And he said to me, and I'm really loving it. And I said, well, let's try and think of what's happening and and why you're liking it so much. Because, well, A, you're out there, it's physical. So you're getting out there and getting some activity. One, you're giving um, of your time um, and, and, uh, you know, energy into this little group of of kids. There's no way you're looking after a group of eight-year-olds if you're not being very mindful. Um, There's no way you're worrying about your worries at this point in time when when you've got your eye on all of those. You've never done this before, so so you're learning. um, And you're connecting with your community. And, you know, I can remember the the sense of delight on his face when he said to me, ah, he said, so maybe that's why I enjoy it so much. And, and, And for me, it reinforced that, Actually, when we think of what's good for our well-being, um, that very often those five uh, sort of um, threads seem to be sitting in the mix. Um, and and he went away feeling very pleased that he was con- that he was looking after his well-being when he didn't think he was doing anything. So uh, it's it's one of my stories I love to share. Yeah, I, I think that's fantastic. I I sometimes speak to um, companies or schools where we also work and they're like, oh, do we need to dedicate some time to be doing activities around wellbeing? I'm like, well, most of us can do it just as part of our ordinary everyday activities. Mm. Just, we, mm. Like that, we don't think about it being mm. a wellbeing activity. Mm. Mm. Uh, so there's plenty of things that we do, but we just have to, if we understand like these five pillars or, you know, um, other frameworks, um, well, we can recognize that what we're doing is actually good for our mental health. Yeah, which is, you know, it, 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 and it goes, um, the, the British Safety Council did a report that I think it came out in 2019 and it's, co- and it's called, um, it's more than fruit on a Monday or yeah. it's not just fruit on a Monday, something like that. And, um, you know, and I think it's such a good title for that because what it's saying is that when you look at what organizations will do to support their one, because they get it, they understand they need to do that, but they're not quite sure what they need to do. And so, the easy options, because it looks, it's got face validity, is to do the stuff that looks like it's um, is going to be effective. So you know, the fruit on the Monday and the massages on a Wednesday and those sort of things. So for me, I think there's a big difference there. For me, that's a wellness initiative, you know. And you know, I've worked in an organisation where there's fruit on the Monday and it's gone by ten o'clock, you know. And and um, and if I have to have a massage, I've got to pay for it. So you know, so. I'm not saying that that wouldn't be good for someone's well-being, but it's not a well-being program. Whereas if you go back and say, what we land up doing in this space should be attached to something that we know makes a difference. And so you have to go, I think, go back to the evidence-based frameworks and say, this stuff makes a difference. And then how do we weave this into to our organiz- you know, organization? So I have one organization that has um, that I've been working with. So their well-being um, initiative was to um to uh to it 
encourage staff to engage in um, in the Auckland Marathon. So no, of course not everyone can run an Auckland Marathon or 40Ks, not everyone can run 10Ks or even walk 10, and walk, run 20 or 10Ks. But people can choose whether they want to walk or they can choose if they want to be a part of the support team, if they want to be on the, on the sides um, doing that, they can, and they can get involved in different ways. But everything that they do is connected either to an activity or it's a learning to do something new because I'm coaching somebody who's never done this before or I'm um, giving because the, 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 the money that's raised is going to be given to a charity. So, you know, that is a program for me that's so much more than fruit on a Monday. Um, and it's way more likely to get embedded in like next year, what do we do that can touch base with those five things again, but be slightly different. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great idea. If you're going to do a wellness activity, make sure it is something that at least all employees can engage in. Like you say, not everyone can run a, a marathon. Yeah. Um, it's uh, interesting uh, what you were mentioning earlier as well around uh, starting with the risk register. Uh, I was recently on the board of an independent private school uh, here in Western Australia. And uh, one of the last things I did uh or we did as a board before I stepped off was to review the risk register. And it was funny in a school environment, we had everything like working at height, confined spaces, you know, um, harmful substances, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, and then when it came to stress, it was lumped into one row in the risk register and it was staff and student stress. Yeah. And I was like, hang on for teachers, you know, stress, work-related stress is probably the biggest hazard uh, for them. And that is, you know, 90% of our employees are a teacher. So why is that this not covered more in the risk register? And um, even before that, I mean, I remember a few years ago speaking with the head of a, a large uh, multinational company and uh, who's responsible for health and safety. And um, he said, okay, well, this is all great, Jason, but how, how are we going to drive this? And I said, well, it's got to sit on in the risk register. If you don't have it in the risk register, then you're not going to have it as a priority in your organization um, to do the risk-based activities that you need to do. It is going to be fruit bowls and yoga and, yes. and all these things that sound yeah. nice and like yeah. you say, have the face yeah. validity, um, but don't necessarily get the job done. Yeah, yeah. So, so picking up your 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 point, I mean, so so you know, now you're taking me really back to the sort of the late seventies because you know, at that stage, um, teachers were acknowledged as one of the most stressed, um, you know, occupational groups, which is why I had done my PhD in that area. So, you know, like, oh, yeah, no, Hillary, it's, it's still the case here in Australia. So out of all occupational groups, teachers um, are just behind first responders um, for um, serious mental health claims yeah. here in Australia. Yeah. So. And, 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 and when it's, you know, so if we don't take a risk assessment lens around that, we'll say we actually, we, we know that teachers get harmed mentally through their work. And so what we'll do is we'll toughen up our teachers, which, you know, sadly is what I was doing to my poor teachers, whereas actually, if we do not look seriously at the way schools are run and some of the issues that they dealt with, that will be an issue. Uh, you know, we also, as I said earlier, we won't get impact. But the other the other confusion here, and I'm, I'd be interested in, in, in your responses around this, not that I'm coming to interview here, um, is um, for me, stress is an impairment risk, like fatigue is an impairment risk. You know, so if you were going to make the distinction between a psychosocial risk, um, I wouldn't put stress as a psychosocial risk. I would put stress as an impairment risk that results as a result of many of the psychosocial risks that we do not control adequately in our work environment. And that often creates a lot of confusion in workplaces. So it goes back to that sense of, you know, it's almost like we've got to go back to some basics here and say, 
let's understand what these risks might be and what's the difference between an impairment risk. I mean, I was reading someone's health and safety manual plan the other day that they asked me to review and they, and they had fatigue management done as, as, the, uh, as the risk. And I think, you know, well, fatigue management's a control. <laughs> <laughs> the risk is actually fatigue. So, yeah. you know, huge confusion. And this is not because people don't care, is it? It's because they just don't actually have an understanding of how um, the risk lens goes into well-being and that the nature of risks to well-being are so different to the nature of a physical risk. Um, a, they're much more political because they're subjective. Uh, one of the things I find is many organizations don't want to go into this space because actually um, they don't want to seriously look at workloads. They don't want to seriously look at staffing issues. Um, and in the, work, in the work of imagined in terms of senior levels, they're quite happy to keep it going. And so it becomes politicized. And someone said to me the other day, the problem with doing the psychosocial risk assessment is that you provide the workers with some weapons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought, gosh, that's such interesting language, isn't it? Surely we've moved on from that. But actually that's the reality is some people are fearful that when you start to take a serious look at these risks or hazards to you know, to, to people's mental health, that um, it's, it's going to become a political ball and it might well be. It's just much easier to give people fruit bowls. So um, <laughs> then open the can of worms, so then you have to do something about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but that, that whole idea about stress as, uh, you know, uh, as impairment, uh, we have discussed that actually very recently with, um, with uh, Tim Marsh, um, yeah. because often we see stress as kind of like an outcome um, yeah. of, of being exposed to, you know, psych hazards. Um, and then obviously, if you're exposed long enough, then it can increase the likelihood of depression and anxiety. Mm. So I, I would counter that maybe there's confusion because it's both. Stress can impair your cognitive um, functioning and then make you more predisposed to either um, be more risky or, um, you know, be involved in accidents. Yeah. But second of all, just being exposed to risk continually can make you ill, which yeah. is also uh, an issue. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so... For me, um, I think the key thing for me is my definitions of how we see this is really important is that if we see stress as the outcome, then we sometimes default to the, the, um, the way we try and fix that is by providing someone with some cognitive behavioral therapy and how to can re, you know, re, review their, their thinking on this, which is a useful strategy, no doubt about that. But if we see it as a, um, we, you know, what we are interested in is what's causing that level of harm. We're going to go into trying to do the design piece. So I think it's just that it's it's not it's not that it's neither it's not that it's right or wrong. It's just that it influences how we actually go into address it and yep. deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, I um, spoke at a conference last week and um, it was for health and safety professionals and talking about psych health and safety. And, you know, once I put up the hierarchy of controls and said, well, where does self-care fit in the hierarchy? <laughs> right down the bottom. Wouldn't we be better off eliminating at the root cause if possible? You yeah, know? yeah. They all, they, they uh, that's a really good it. idea. I think I might beg and borrow that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, use, I, I like using the CDC, Total, total Worker Health Model uh, Hierarchy yeah. of Controls because yeah. it fits in better, obviously. Um, yeah. But for health and safety people, they can just understand how backwards the current approach to mental health is when you start looking at it using a hierarchy. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, it's a bit like, it's like in, um, if you look at the most common corrective actions when you've had a safety accident, it's like, be more careful. So in, in the well-being space, what we say to people, look after yourself more. <laughs> more resilient. And we still get emails from our, our bosses at one o'clock in the morning and, you know, requests to do some work on, on a Friday afternoon for a Monday. And, you know, well, how do I look after myself in that scenario? Yeah. <laughs> yep. One of those classic double binds. We've, we've, <laughs> this is what we've told you that we want you to do to protect yourself. But we're also going to give you these goals that you, you can't do both at the same time. So you have mm -hmm. to pick one and well, guess which one's going <laughs> to, it's the one that's going to make us money that we want you to pay attention to, but we're not going to tell you that explicitly. We're mm -hmm. just going to put it all on your shoulders to, to balance. And if it goes wrong, we can say that it's your fault for not doing what we told you to do. <laughs> <laughs> that That's, sounds very cynical of you, Joe. <laughs> I'm not cynical, Jason. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so we've talked quite a bit, Hillary, about this, um, I guess, the focus on building resilience um, for employee mental health. Um, and I think we've probably already got your answer on this, but, um, you know, is it enough to focus on building resilience? What else, what else do we want to see organisations doing? Oh, so I, I, in my mind, I have um, uh, a framework that I developed for the Business Forum, which says actually there's four distinct pieces of work to be done in this place. The one is to go in and do what we've been talking about and say, go and identify the risk to well-being and go and build in proactively um, the, the factors that we know people protect, protect their well-being. And so in my mind, that's what I call that's, that's the, the protect work. The resiliency training work sits for me in what I call foster, which is again proactively go in and actually help people build up their capability to deal with adversity because adversity will come, challenges come to all of us at any point in time. So can we proactively give people the um, understanding what they can do and what can an organization to work in that space proactively? So Fire-based well-being is a good example. I think if you, as, as an individual or an organization, puts into place strategies where you can say, we don't have to wait for people to be struggling before we can actually start connecting, start keep learning and all that sort of stuff. My, my, the third area of, of work, I think, is when people are struggling, um, and we know those numbers, one in four, one in five in your workplaces, our workplaces, then what do we have in place to um, support people so that Again, if you think of mental health continuum, they are, we can reverse the flow of that if you can talk about, think of it in that way, rather than them um, moving further down that continuum to the point which they actually are harmed. So there's, and I call that the, these things that people and organization can do to restore the well-being of people. And so peer, you know, peer, um, sort of peer coaching, peer support work, um, the work that, that, you know, that having a quiet room in your workplace where people can go down, go down and just take some time out. So very individually focused and it is reactive because people are starting to travel um, along that continuum, but they haven't got to the point where we're going to go to the fourth piece of work, which I would call the support work, where you say, actually, this person now needs some medical counseling support. And my argument has always been in this space, which is, it's not a matter of either or, you actually need all four of those. You need to be proactively looking at what's causing some, you know, some level of distress and trying to eliminate or, eliminate, eliminate or minimize and you doing good design work. You foster in a proactive way, people's well-being, given strategies so that, you know, they're in a better position when life gets a little bit hard. 
And when people are struggling, we try and step in early before they have to go to the APs. And then, you know, we, as we all know, we fall through the cracks at some point in time. And it's important that we then have some way of trying to um, get some support. So for me, uh, there is, if, if we are going to be ready, um, if we're going to have some significant impact, we can't play, it's like any game of sport, you can't play in one quarter of the game, you can't play, a good game doesn't occur in one quarter of the field, it occurs across all four quarters. So I think in addition to resiliency, resiliency but it's foster building work if it's done proactively. Resiliency building could be restore work if it's done because people are struggling. But if we don't do the risk assessment, good design piece, and if we don't have the supports there, we, we, we still short of change. So for me, it's quite clear in my mind that there's four distinct different types of work that needs to be done. Um, from, if, you, if you go back to the view around New Zealand, I've recently just done a bit of work myself where I've mapped um, what people are doing across organizations that take this seriously into those four quadrants and four approaches. And um, no surprise, uh, the work that's been done is in the, um, is in the, the EAP, the support space, and in the foster space, and very little work, almost no work done in the risk assessment, good design piece. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very clear to me where we need to be pacing our energy because that's not where we, we've, been, we've been focusing um, over the last couple of years. Mm, I think what you're talking about there aligns pretty closely with, um, so when we had uh, Jennifer Lowe on, we talked about the um, sort of major accident hazard approach. Um, so bow tie methodologies and that yeah. sort of thing. Um, so it sounds, what, what you're talking about there really aligns quite closely with that, where you sort of eliminate the hazards where you can, and then you prevent exposure to them where possible recognizing that sometimes you are still going to get that exposure, then you try to reduce the impact of it on the individual and then you try to mitigate um, yes. the severity of the outcomes yes. associated yeah. with that. And you need to have all of those layered um, yeah. control measures in place to have an effective system. Can I just can I just pick up on something you said there, which is the use of bow ties in the space? So I might be on a limb here, but um, from my understanding of having done some research recently around what the sort of international thinking is about how to identify psychosocial risk um, is that the traditional risk assessment methodologies that we would have used to identify physical risk in the workplace actually aren't appropriate. So although I see lots of organizations using bow ties, I sort of shudder because actually it's an appropriate methodology to do if you're looking at confined space or an explosion or you know um, release of energy or whatever that is. But my, my understanding, and I'm not saying I'm right, but it's just my understanding at this stage is that particularly out of the European community that the thinking around this space is that because of the nature, because the risk to well-being are, are distinctly different to the risk to, well, to physical well-being in that they're much more subjective. As I said earlier, they're much more, as a result, can be much more, they're much more political in nature. Um, there's often a huge difference between what's perceived to be a risk between people who work at the top of the organization and those who work at the bottom of the organization. That actually, if we're going to do good work in this space, we actually need to go for a collaborative participatory conversation approach as opposed to the traditional quantitative risk assessment methods. And I'm just starting to get my head around of the space. I don't think that I, I wouldn't put myself up here as, as being um, you know, the total loss voice on this. 
but I think one of the things I would really encourage uh, listeners to do is to really reflect on the methodology used when they go to do risk assessment in this space. Because it seems to me that um, we have to start thinking about <clears throat> doing this quite differently. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, the, the bow tie is a useful analogy to, to use when you're sort of um, trying to explain these concepts of the different types of control measures to an organisation. But you wouldn't necessarily want to use that exact methodology when you're going through and doing a, a um, psychosocial risk assessment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously it's a lot more about um, work um, employee consultation and collaboration throughout the entire process, which is, you know, yeah, very different to, to what you would do from a sort of an engineering approach to developing a bow tie. Yeah. 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 And listen, yeah. listeners who've heard uh, other episodes of, of ours will definitely have heard the message multiple times that when you're doing a psych risk assessment, don't just rely on survey data, the quant quantitative stuff. Yeah. You really need to dive in deep and really listen to employees to really understand their perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a real challenge because I mean I've been facilitating um, so what I call well-being by design conversations to try and identify these risks. And you know, so in in any group, I think the key thing here too is because it's it's so linked to the the to the work. You have to have natural occurring groups. You can't do this mm -hmm. sort of you can't just yeah. make a random representative of people from an organisation. It has to go back to the the people doing the same work. And then in the conversation there because it's so subjective, you'll get some people who risk your rate, a, let's just say workload as something that's not an issue for them. And then other people, they see that it's really an issue. And, and it's no use just to average it out. Um, and so the challenge is then how do we find some middle ground there that you're saying, okay, for most people, where do we sit on this without devaluing your outliers? Um, because for them, that's real. And then proactively move forward. So I think this, I think if we, you know, if we go forward over the next while, this will be one of our real challenges, which is how do we, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a collaborative participatory way, as I said earlier, have facilitated conversations that really can give everybody a voice, but still land at a position where we can actually move forward and do something different. And, and, and that's going to be a real challenge. Yeah. And that work group piece, um, it makes so much sense as well. Again, one of the um, downfalls, I think, and you see this particularly in employee engagement surveys, is this fascination with doing organisational level interventions. Yeah. Uh, we shouldn't be falling into the same trap when it comes to, you know, risk uh, management um, of identified psych hazards um, by applying organisational level um, interventions. We need to be looking at least at the work group, if not, yeah. like you say, even smaller clusters within work groups that are affected. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it, it's, it's really, really key, and which means that it's going to be a much more um, timely process, isn't it? Because, you know, we're going to have to go to all these different sort of work groups. I was working at an airport recently trying to trial in some of this stuff. So I was working with the firemen that wait in their, their machines to go out and, you know, if a, if a plane comes in and there's a, there's a fire and it goes on, there's rescue stuff. And then working with the people that work in the control room and then working people that might, you know, working in security, getting people stuff through, you know, X-ray machines. That so the issues that arise in those three groups—they all they all work in the airport, but they are so significantly different um, that previously we wouldn't we wouldn't have tended to go into those natural occurring groups. And 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 so the learning for this particular airport was actually, if we're serious about this stuff, we're going to have to do different things 
for different people because there are different things that are putting people at risk across those different types of, of work. But can I just pick up on your work on the, on the engagement side? So I don't know if you experience this, but I often get people often say to me, they'll use their engagement scores as a measure of well-being. And I think, no, you can't do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because how often do you, because engagement is a discretionary behavior and I go beyond my call of duty to do whatever, you know, because I'm so enthused and, and, you know, energized by this work. Those are exactly the people that burn themselves out. So mm -hmm. I always push back when people say, well, we can use our engagement score as a well-being. I said, no, you can use your engagement score as a measure of people's willingness to give you discretionary effort. You can't use that initially as a, of, of where they would sit on that mental health continuum because they might be actually right at the bottom end just because they are so engaged. Yeah, I, I should clarify, I don't see them using the end score, engagement score as a substitute for a wellbeing measure, but they look at mapping some of the factors or constructs that are picked up within the engagement survey and map that as onto their psychological yeah, yeah, So yeah. you know, yeah, it might be workload or leadership, yeah. support, yeah, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally get totally that. Yeah. So talking a little bit more a bit more about the the psychosocial risk assessment element, um, Hillary, have you got any experiences you can share on um, how a robust risk assessment could be conducted? Um, so, so, um, I do, um, but it's very, um, uh, it's been, it's been a testing period for me over, or a trialing period for me over the last while where I've been going in and actually using, um, a framework that I've developed, which is, um, anchored by the mental health continuum and saying, you know, and saying there are, there are, there are protective factors that can support people to thrive, but there are risk factors that can harm people. And, and I've identified four large, four categories of these factors. So some related to the tasks of workload issues, care expectations, et cetera. Some related more to the social elements in terms of relationships, some more to the individual around progression um, and advancement and being able to balance work life, et cetera. And some more to organizational. So all I did is I sort of reviewed all the international literature that I could hand, lay my hands on. So that I felt comfortable, I picked up all the issues that we know can either protect or risk people's well-being. And I put that into a framework, which I call well-being by design. And I'm using that as a, as a framework to, to have facilitated conversation. So I, as a facilitator, I'll go in and you'll talk through. And I can do it in different ways. I can either get a group to, to systematically work through that and rate themselves on where they personally see that and then share their, their insights with the group. And it takes about two hours to do this. Um, and I've also then linked it to say that if you, on a 10 point scale, you know, if you're on the lower end, that would say your work's the toxic, hard word, I know, um, but or otherwise, you know, your work's decent and decent's not just a, a word I pulled out of the air, it's actually linked to in New Zealand, it's enshrined in the Human Rights Act as, you know, we should at least give people minimum standards of work and pay equal pay for equal work. So it's sort of, for me, that's like, that's just the, the basics. Or, or you can, can people have to thrive. And I've done it in, in different ways. So as I say, sometimes just using the framework, working through issues, sometimes asking people to look at it first and then come back and, and rate themselves. I've done it for a review where an organization's actually been given an improvement notice and I've done an internal review using that as my framework to identify why 
this particular group had raised an issue around um, the psychological health in the workplace and, and have used that to guide my, my review. So, um, sorry, long story short on that. Um, I, so I, I think I, where I'm tracking and the work I'm doing is, is to go and always to have it as a conversation piece with a group of people who know the work intimately um, and to not just go in with a deficit lens, but to go in with a lens that says there will be in the way your work is designed and organized and managed some stuff that's really working well to protect your well-being. And we should actually pay, pay attention to that. And we should actually say, how do we maintain that? So not just doing a straight, this is, could risk you in terms of harm, but also say what's in your work at the moment that's protection. So trying to work both those sides of the equation is, is, um, is what I've been doing. And I've been having, I've, I've certainly been getting some good feedback on that. The challenge is, um, I don't think that work should be reliant on consultants coming in to do that work. So I think you have to build internal capability. So again, the value of the New Zealand Business Leaders Forum is the work we do, or I do on their behalf, that goes into open source and it's accessible to anyone. And so you can, you know, what I'm saying to organizations, once you've got an understanding of it and you've got some good facilitators, um, they could be health and safety reps, it could, you know, they don't have to be, they just need good facilitation skills. That thing would become part of that process, that team taking responsibility for their ongoing well-being, and, and every three months or so going in and, and just revisiting that and looking at what could be done and to either eliminate or minimize or, and if they can't eliminate or minimize, then move it into the foster space and say, okay, so what do we need to do to do to protect our well-being? What strategy? So trying to work those two together, I suppose, is what I've um it's where I'm spending a lot of my time at the moment anyway. Mm, I think it, yeah, definitely important to um, tease out the protective factors that are present and um, look at how um, organisations can maximise the benefits from those as well as looking at the, um, the addressing the hazards. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting to see what people do see as protective factors, you know, and, and, and often it is just having good collegial relationships and, you know, again, not rocket science stuff, is it? But um, the importance of, of mates looking after mates and, and points are actually helping out if you see someone struggling. It's that sort of stuff that's really very key to protecting people's well-being. Um, and and so people can sometimes um, endure quite a lot when they've got that. And I say that cautiously because you don't want people to endure hazardous work context because they've got good colleagues you know um, but yeah, yeah you, you can endure to a point yeah yeah then it drops off pretty quickly once you reach yeah. that tipping point yeah yeah now incredible work um uh, there's so many things that you pulled out there the importance of good consultation um you know the importance of building up competence within organizations the the need for companies to be self-sufficient and not reliant on external expertise um, they're all things that, you know, we're also trying to address here. So uh, I think they're all really important. Yeah. Um, but you, you've been involved now in this space for, you know, uh, over 40 years. Yeah. Um, and so we've had a bit of a retrospective with you during the course of this podcast yeah. episode yeah. so far. But if you had to look into your crystal ball and, and look into the future, what would your hopes for the future of, of workplace mental health look like? Um, I think it would be that we've normalized the conversation around mental health and um, 
and and got people to really understand this that that we all have it every day and this is not about um supporting people because they've got issues at home that's getting in the way i i would love it that we actually understood that um in the same way as we wake up in the morning feeling physically sometimes chirpier than others that we do the same in terms of our mental health and so that uh, we really can support people to stay on the thriving side or the going okay side and, and that and that 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 is in the same way well, i'm getting myself a tongue tied here but if instead of just um doing redesign the work because it's good for efficiencies or productivity but we actually redesign because we value people being on the thriving end of that continuum so i know we've had a lot of focus on safety culture we've had a lot of focus on engagement culture i would love to see in the next while that you know that the, the word thriving culture is just something that we all sign up for and and that actually because we spend so much time in a workplace, it seems to me the most obvious place that we can have such a significant impact. If we could really get senior people in organizations to sign up for actually, they are as committed to people going home physically safe, as to going home mentally well as they are to physically safe, that would be fantastic. Yeah, hear, hear. <laughs> All right, and do you have some, um parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share for professionals who'd like to work in this field of psych health and safety? Oh gosh. I don't know if I, okay. Um, I think that <laughs> um, I would, I would say to, to those professionals, I said, don't rush into putting into place what seems to be at, at first blush, a well-being activity without um Take, taking time to, to, to see whether there's some evidence that it's going to work, um, not to rush into doing the work that seems to look like well-being work, so the resiliency work and the mental first aid work. Again, as I've said several times, not that I'm not that I'm devaluing that work, but here's my fear, and this is to these professionals, is that that work will suck up all the resources and it won't leave anything left to do some good design work. So First of all, go and do your diagnostic work and let that inform the well-being programs that you then put in place so that you can actually embed it. That would be my parting words of wisdom. <laughs> Very wise words there. Thank you. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Hilary, it's been awesome chatting with you. I'm glad we finally made it work with our schedules um, and glad to get you just before you had to fly off for a conference and, and hopefully that conference goes really well and the message is received well by, by those business leaders. Yeah. We're also lighting up the Sky City tomorrow night um, for um, health and, International Health and Safety Day. So, um, yeah, it will be an interesting, an interesting little um, sojourn. <laughs> the Sky City being our big tower in Auckland. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it's so great being, uh, yeah, getting to know a bit more about you, the work that you're doing and some of your perspectives. They're definitely very well aligned with with the show. So you're a perfect guest for uh, the cycle. And, and, I, and I promise, guys, I'll go and I'll go and listen to some more podcasts. <laughs> I've never done that before. Oh, that's all right. I'm prepared. <laughs> but look, um, that brings us to the end of the episode today. So thanks again to Hillary. Don't forget, um, we do record these over Zoom. So if you want to see the full video rather than listen to the podcast, as Hillary has said that she prefers to do, uh, we do have that on the Flourish DX YouTube channel. 
Right. Also, if you um, prefer to see just the little snippets, the nuggets of gold, and there are a few today again, um, you'll be able to find them on the Flourish DX LinkedIn page. Uh, and then, yeah, Joelle and I are very active on LinkedIn. So you can also feel free to follow us or connect with us directly. You'll find that despite how Joelle appears on the podcast, she's actually quite friendly. <laughs> At first, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until you get to know her. Um, but that's it for today's episode. Thanks again. And we'll catch you next time. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.